0: You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Megan Pidcock, and today I will be talking to Dr. Jay Richards. Uh, Dr. Richards is the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, and the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in Religious Liberty and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for coming on today.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: The day that this is recording is a year since the Dobbs decision has been handed down. How have states responded to that decision within the year?
1: It's been uh, several different things. So, some states actually had pro life bills already on their books that had been basically overridden by uh, Roe v. Wade in 1973. So, in some states, uh, the fact that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, that essentially triggered the laws that were on the books to go into effect. And so there's that whole set of states that immediately became pro-life effectively and protected at least some uh, unborn life that they couldn't before uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Some other states have implemented strong pro-life laws. So Texas and uh, Florida under uh, Governor DeSantis and Oklahoma in particular have uh, basically strengthened their pro-life laws. And then others have actually gone the other way. So um, states like California and, unfortunately, Michigan um, have actually basically (laughs) made themselves abortion sanctuary states. And in in the case of Michigan, of course, under Proposition 3, Uh, Proposition 3, though, it was advertised as an abortion bill to basically ratify Roe v. Wade in state law was written so vaguely that it actually goes way beyond abortion. So it effectively gives declares people uh, a right to be able to control their reproductive outcomes. And counterintuitively, that could mean, for instance, (laughs) that men uh, in Michigan that aren't able to actually have children could actually have some kind of guarantee to access to children, Uh, It can also have implications for gender transition surgery and all of these kinds of things. And so the question is whether that was uh, written intentionally in order to open the door for those things uh, or it was just drafted so vaguely. But unfortunately, in Michigan, what happened is that there was a massive campaign by Planned Parenthood to essentially deceive voters about what was actually at stake. So, you know, in some in the last year, states have done all sorts of different things in the wake of the demise of Roe v. Wade.
0: What is the future of the pro-life movement in states that have become sanctuaries, or just generally within the United States?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it is going to have to be uh, an information campaign to help people actually understand what's happening in an abortion. I mean, depending on you know the, po- the way a poll is asked, uh, it's clear that more and more people than in 1973 understand what's happening with respect to abortion. But it, for, for 50 years, people persisted in the mistaken belief that Roe v. Wade only allowed abortion during the first trimester, which is not true because there was a concurrent decision called Doe v. Bolton in 1973 that effectively created abortion on demand for all nine months of pregnancy. And you had some states that came very close to that uh, even up until last year. And so even many people that think they actually are pro-choice, if you dig into the details, they would actually oppose the vast majority of potential abortion. So honestly, in states like Michigan, pro-lifers have got to be involved in an education campaign. And then the other thing um, is that we have to make the case for a federal role here. A lot of people, including some, um, frankly, people on the right that were thinking all that clearly said, well, this should just be a states' rights issue. Now, of course, it's true that criminal law and things like that are generally handled by states rather than the federal government. But if abortion is what it appears to be, it's the taking of a of a, a defenseless unborn human life. Then obviously, there's a federal role there um, under the Fourteenth Amendment, equal protection. There are a number of ways to justify this in terms of the, the federal Constitution. So, I'm convinced that of, co- of course states are going to take the lead, but doesn't follow that the federal government doesn't have a role to play. And, you know, what what we're seeing, um, say, in the state of Florida is what are called gestational limits, so essentially saying, okay, uh, there aren't going to be abortions after a heartbeat uh, can be detected, which is sort of effectively six weeks or something like that, or pain-capable. You get up to, say, 15 weeks. What most Americans don't know is that if you have, say, an abortion ban that is at 15 weeks, that might Alan Draconian, the people that approach pro-choice, that's to the left of most European countries. The United States on abortion, at least until last year, was actually to the left of highly secular, uh, left-wing Northern Europe, which tells you just how radical the abortion regime was in the U.S. under Roe v. Wade.
0: What has the federal response been, and what do you think it should be?
1: Well, and so, of course, um, we had some uh, very modest... Uh, in pro-life improvements at the federal level, um, even under Roe v. Wade. So things like partial birth abortion bans, um, bans on you know babies that are born alive as a result of a botched abortion, very kind of nominal things that can save a few lives in the most ghoulish circumstances, but it really does very little uh, to, to save large numbers of unborn life. I would say the federal government um, honestly has any kind of role to play from um, some kind of minimum standard, for instance, that could be established at the federal level, to also making sure that dangerous chemical abortion, so in other words, abortion drugs that, that women can take, um, don't, don't suddenly proliferate. So if you look at the other side, Planned Parenthood, for instance, is lobbying, for abortion drugs to be used, you know, essentially like a PEZ dispenser. They'd love to have it over the counter. They want uh, doctors to be able to prescribe abortion drugs to women without actually even meeting them. So do it over, uh, say, telemedicine or over Zoom. And so Planned Parenthood and the the forces on the other side are thinking, okay, we're going to have fewer surgical abortions because of Roe v. Wade overturned. So I'd say they're diversifying their their um, service offerings to include uh, as much abortion pill dispensing as they could possibly get away with. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters, of course, because abortions are involved, but it also matters because these drugs are really dangerous. And so a woman, for instance, who has had an ectopic pregnancy in which the, uh, the, the embryo embeds itself, say, in a fallopian tube, this happens about 1% of pregnancies. And if a woman in that situation were to take these uh, abortion drugs, it actually lead to, to life-threatening emergencies and so if doctors are handing these out uh, over zoom or planned parenthood clinics are handing them out over telemedicine lots and lots of women that don't realize they have ectopic pregnancies or other types of pregnancy complications could actually be in serious trouble that's something that everyone including people that you know support abortion over for, for nine months should be concerned about, because in this case, we're talking about the life and health of
0: mothers. My name is Megan Pitcock, and I'm talking to Dr. Richards on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Uh, Sort of going back to what Proposition 3 deals with, I know that one of the things that's within it is sort of this, like, gender ideology, gender affirming, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Can you talk a bit more about that aspect of some of these uh, legislative moves?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is funny because the bill, of course, doesn't have to do with so-called gender affirming care. So this idea that kids who feel gender discordance, so maybe a male who feels uncomfortable being a male or thinks he's a woman, um, most people think, okay, well, the way you help him is to adjust his uh, misperception in his mind to his bodily reality. But under gender ideology, the way you help him is by affirming his gender identity, which means changing his name and pronouns Giving him cross-sex hormones, even performing surgery on him uh, to conform his body effectively to this misperception, his gender identity. That's happening now, absolutely everywhere in the United States and across the country, and certainly um, across the world. What's funny about Proposition Three is it wasn't about that. It's, it's presumably about abortion, but the way the language is, uh, is formulated it actually seems to open the door to some of these things so that they think of rather than sort of a very specific law that specifies abortion to say that everyone has a sort of right to reproductive health in some vague sense. I mean, this can imply, for instance, that that somebody has an absolute right not to just raise their own children, but to have children. Um, And so you could end up in a very strange situation, um, you know, either with respect to gender surgery or Uh, a strange situation where the the state is responsible for supplying children for, say, two men that are in a same-sex marriage or something like that. So it's a really very strange bill, Um, and so there are reasons to oppose that um, beyond the fact that it would just essentially ratify Roe v. Wade in state law.
0: As far as gender ideology goes in sort of the general pop culture, not even pop culture, but just the general culture of the moment... How do you think that's affected, you know, schools, kids, that sort of thing? Well,
1: it, I would say that the fight over gender ideology is the most important single cultural event of our time. Gender ideology is its like a distillation of all the worst ideas of the 19th and 20th centuries boiled down into a single issue. I mean, if you had asked people 15 years ago if they thought it would be a good idea to sterilize minors in order to treat a psychological condition, virtually no one would have said yes. That's crazy, Um, and in fact, it's evil. Obviously, sterilizing kids to help them, presumably psychologically, um, just sounds like a terrible idea. Well, that's exactly where we are now. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the Endocrine Society, on and on and on tell us that the proper way to treat gender dysphoria is in this way, and this highly interventionist um, way of treating kids in which you give boys estrogen and girls testosterone. You give girls double mastectomies very often when they're still minors. This is a kind of ghoulish medicine that, uh, that almost it makes the eugenics of a century ago look tame. And it's, it's just uncanny how this is, has permeated our institutions Kids are getting it, of course, in school. Certainly, public schools through their curricula, but they're also getting it through social media. So, for most people, it's not—they don't even quite understand what's happening. They know that it sounds crazy to them, um, but this is a radical ideology that I don't—I th- don't think anyone sort of imagined would, would uh, gain such currency. At the same time, I'm actually. Fairly optimistic that it is so extreme. It's coming between parents and their children, uh, and that's alerting a lot of people that might not otherwise have been paying attention. They might not have cared about abortion law. They might not have cared about marriage laws. Uh, but when your children are being indoctrinated and alienated from their bodies, I think that's another thing entirely. So, honestly, I, I think the gender ideologues are going to be surprised to see what a diverse array of people. From Elon Musk and J.K. Rowling on one side to social conservatives on the other side are lining up to fight this stuff.
0: Why do you think this has been something that's been pushed so hard by specific groups?
1: It, it, it's a weird kind of phenomenon in which you have both ideas and technology Coming together and creating a
0: perfect storm. I mean,
1: there are on the one side actual billionaires, people like Martin Rothblatt, uh, formerly Martin Rothblatt, and Jennifer Pritzker, both men who present as women, with huge amounts of money that they are pouring in to organizations. John Stryker of the Arcus Foundation, has given tens of millions of dollars to the ACLU, for instance, to fight laws that. At the state level, that simply try to limit these procedures for minors, and so there's very serious moneyed interest on one side, and then also financial interest from drug companies and and Planned Parenthood, for instance, which dispense cross-sex hormones. Uh, Because if you have someone that is is a male that decides he's going to transition to appear as a female, he is a lifelong customer. Uh, Surgery might be temporary but he'll be taking estrogen for the rest of his life. Same for, for a woman. If she does that, she'll be taking testosterone for the rest of her life. So I don't think that there was a conspiracy of drug companies to do this, but now that it's proliferating the culture, there are strong corporate financial incentives to keep this thing going, unfortunately. And so that's what essentially makes it um, it it makes it a perfect storm. And then, and then there's just simply the ideologues um, of subscribers – through so-called queer theories, who want to destabilize the categories of reality that all of us take for granted, whether it's the category of male and female or it's the category of adult and child. This is the modus operandi of critical theory, which is to destabilize the, the conceptual categories uh, of the present order in hopes of bringing about some kind of Egalitarian utopia that they imagine in their minds that unfortunately will never will never come about.
0: Do you think the pandemic and sort of the lockdowns had an effect on this?
1: Absolutely, and in fact, if you just think about what happened during the lockdowns in particular, which were um, those were remember a government response to the pandemic. They weren't intrinsic to the virus. Uh, that And let's, kids had schools closed down, they immediately transferred to uh, online schooling. Kids had a lot more time to spend just essentially by themselves looking at their computer screens. Massive proliferation of social media influencers. And so we know that maybe something like 65% of kids that present now with gender, symptoms of gender dysphoria initially got these ideas online. Uh, And that's the kind of reality that we have to deal with. I mean, the reality is if you'd look at, say, 30 years ago, the incidence of gender dysphoria were extremely rare. You were dealing basically with prepubescent boys, very, very rare, and the vast majority of them who have this this gender discordance or gender dysphoria would get over it if allowed to go through puberty. So for many of these kids, puberty itself was sort of the cure to the problem. We're in a different situation now in which orders of magnitude more kids are presenting with these symptoms, and we now have a, a majority of these kids are actually girls, which is a different situation. Um, if you put them on the pipeline, on the gender-affirming pipeline, which starts with social transition and moves on to puberty blockers, if you put a child on puberty blockers, they are almost certain to go on to receive cross-sex hormones. So you really are um, even introducing them to the social transition phase of this putting them on a what some of us call a school to sterilization pipeline. There's no doubt in my mind that the, the the lockdowns and the constantly online reality for kids during the lockdowns vastly amplified and sped up the effects of this so that we're seeing an increase in kids present you know <clears throat> getting prescribed these surgeries, for instance, four or five times the numbers now uh, compared to just a few years ago, right before the lockdowns took effect. So, we're, yeah, we're looking at a, at a at some kind of technological magnifying effect of, of otherwise very toxic ideologies.
0: I know you mentioned that uh, just sort of the targeting of breaking down of family units and sort of parents' mm-hmm. rights. Can you talk a bit more about that and how that relates yeah. to some of these things that have been happening?
1: Absolutely. I mean, so... It, Again, think of what we're calling gender-affirming care as connecting the schools with medical clinics, and so the way this often starts in schools is with social transitioning, very often behind kids' backs, and so or behind parents' backs rather, and so parents won't actually know. They someone, for instance, a mother, January Little John in Tallahassee, Florida, her daughter was struggling with uh, her identity and having you know discomfort with her body. Uh, she said something like this, in effect, to a school counselor, uh, January, the mom and her husband had told the school, okay, do not, don't play along with this. We're, we're working to help our daughter, but don't do this. The school secretly did it anyway. So they had what's called a gender support plan, in which everyone goes along. They change the child's name, they change her pronouns, change the bathroom that she's able to, to that she goes in. And so the entire school essentially decides it's going to forcibly participate in this illusion, now, in that case, uh, the, the Little Johns found out about what they're, what's happening. They're now suing the Tallahassee School District over this. And as a result of this, in the state of Florida last year, Governor DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education bill, which uh, effectively this is the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill. It's actually nothing of the sort. What it essentially did was guarantee that schools will be accountable and transparent, uh, so that they can't do this without the parents' permission and, and and buy-in. Moreover, if schools do do this, the law gives a private right of action to parents to be able to sue the schools in civil court. So that's think of that as kind of stopping up the mouth of the school to sterilization pipeline. Other things that states can do would be parents' Bill of Rights, which just basically secure the the truth that parents are the primary educators and guardians of their children. Schools are not. Schools do not own children. Parents may delegate part of their authority temporarily to schools, but they don't give up their authority over their children, Um, and and that's something that is unfortunately happening and has been happening in probably half of the states in the United States in which schools have these private gender support plans to transition kids behind parents' backs. Um, That's the bad news. The good news is that this has awakened hundreds of thousands of parents who were previously asleep at the wheel and not really paying attention to what was happening in their schools, And this was, again, another silver lining of of the, the lockdowns is that parents started finding out what was happening in their kids' classrooms because it was being beamed into their homes over Zoom. And a lot of parents didn't like what they saw. So as awful as the lockdowns were for so many reasons, there are a few silver linings and that many parents are now much more aware of what's happening in schools than they were beforehand.
0: What actions can parents take to sort of help stop these things from happening or help their children?
1: The most important thing any parent can do is to find out absolutely everything that's being delivered to their kids, and this goes beyond asking to see the curriculum because many of these materials actually won't be in an official curriculum. Teachers are, you know, perfectly free to download the the gender-bred person diagram or the gender unicorn diagram, which are essentially teaching aids to teach kids gender ideology. They can pull that off the internet and that can be in the lesson plan for the day. And if a parent's just looking at the official curriculum, they would never know that that's happening. And so, if if your parents, especially in a public school or a woke private school, ask the teachers and ask the administration to to tell you absolutely everything that's being presented to kids, if they seem cagey, if they seem disinclined to do that, that tells you they're probably doing something that you would not approve of, and you should be very very suspicious. The other way around this is simply to have universal school choice in states. So that if the school dollars are attached to children rather than to the place, that empowers parents to actually shop. And a few states, uh, like Arizona in particular, now have universal educational savings accounts in which uh, the, there's not a lot of strings attached so the state isn't controlling these dollars. But it's put in a savings account that the parents use uh, however they want. They can send them to the public schools or they can send them to a private school. They can do a homeschool co-op. That would break this because part of the reason this is happening is because there's a near-government public school monopoly dictating where most kids can go to school. And unfortunately, the teachers' unions in charge are uh, fully behind this ideology. And so I honestly think in some ways, um, yes, focus on what's happening in public schools, focus on what's happening in your district, but also push for universal school choice in your state, because that's the, that's the quickest way to block this ideological logjam deal.
0: Thank you so much for coming on.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: My name is Megan Pitcock on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, and I've been talking to Dr. Jay Richards.